ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Welcome to The Minefield, a program about negotiating the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life and haven't they been coming out thick and fast. You may have heard that in the sigh that I uttered before I started speaking today. Well, the Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. How are you, Scott? How am I, Waleed? <laughs> it's, it's a bit of a difficult week to be talking about some of the contradictions and tensions at the heart of democratic politics when forms of egregious political violence have broken out elsewhere in the world. But we're doing a topic today that is worthy of attention. And that we'd also kind of had planned. This is part of the other thing, because we're recognising that Australia itself is in a really crucial week or two, fortnight, let's say. Yeah. The week leading up to the voice referendum and the week that follows it, of course. And while today's show isn't about the referendum Mm. in a narrow or specific sense... Mm. There, there are things are we things, have to discuss, yeah. Yeah, and and that we kind of plan to discuss. And so we resolved that, that we were going to continue along that path, but yeah. So there are all sorts of things. We care deeply about what might be called the conditions of our common life, the habits, the practices, the forms of mutual regard, of conviction and of discipline, of engagement and compromise. We care deeply about the bonds that hold us together and the way that those bonds can begin to fray and break. You and I are, I think you're naturally a bit more morose. (laughs) Yep. Okay. I don't think I'm preternaturally optimistic. Anybody who knows me knows that I'm not optimistic, but I have a deep idea of democracy that hopefully doesn't stray into unrealism or impracticality or non-pragmatism, but nonetheless holds certain ideals that I believe are integral to the moral life as being safeguarded within democracy properly practice. And that means that I think we're both pretty sensitive to when we feel that things are going wrong. And anybody who's lived in Australia over the last few months will have felt in various ways that things are going wrong. Anybody who has tried to square the invidious circle of how to engage forthrightly in a manner that is morally justifiable and politically sensible with the issue of climate change can immediately identify the various ways in which democratic deliberation, short-termism versus our obligation to future persons, the various ways in which democracy just doesn't feel quite up to the task. Um, We've talked around these things so many times over the last few years. And referenda particularly. And Um, referenda in particular. And plebiscites and, yeah, all that. Um, The brutal nature of the straight-up yes or no vote, the fact that a yes can be unequivocal in a way that is unhelpful in the way that it sort of silences dissent afterwards, the way that no can communicate a kind of cruelty, an inelegance, a nuance. In other words, a no in in a referendum can't contain no but... Or no, although, it is just no. And in the aftermath of every referendum, the competition to interpret the result, often in ways that are not sober, begins. Exactly right. Okay. That's not quite what we're doing today. (laughs) No. So, jumping from Australia for a moment, briefly to the US, and then back to Australia. Presidential elections, the lead up to presidential elections, are always weird. 
They're weird in ways that I think are unanticipatable, and they are weird sui generis. They, they, just, they, they become weird in ways that are almost unique and singular to themselves. The 2024 presidential campaign, it's shaping up at the moment, it's weird in two very different ways. Way number one is that the prohibitive nominee for the Republican Party is under indictment, 91 separate felonious charges over five separate indictments, and he will be, unless something extraordinary happens, he will be the Republican nominee, and at this moment he's leading in the polls. That's weird. The other thing that is weird is that his rival is believed to be, by three-quarters of Americans and two-thirds of members of his own party, to be too old for the job. I can't remember, Waleed, the last time that fears over gerontocracy, the rule of the old, were as pronounced as they are now in American politics. There's always been an over-representation of senior persons in senior roles, whether it be Speaker of the House or the head of the Senate or members of the Supreme Court because it's a lifetime appointment. But the fear, especially among Democrats, but among Americans more generally, in the face of visibly aging politicians, politicians that may still be mentally acute, but are defying the popular belief that they can be competent in their job. There's a certain fear surrounding the current U.S. gerontocracy. It's a phrase that I never thought I would uh, read or hear in American political reporting. That's kind of peculiar to this moment. It's very, very, very strange what's happening in the U.S. But the reason that we don't want to stay there is that the viewing of kind of elderly figures becoming seemingly less competent in very high political roles, and even people sort of suffering from severe moments or episodes while giving press conferences, and in one instance, a very, very old and distinguished senator dying in office. One of the things that this has done is it's deepened a growing fear, and I need to be careful just how strongly I put this, but I do believe it's a fear that has been mounting over the course of the last three decades, that representative politics is basically an old person's game, and that representative politics is skewed to favor those of a particular age in life. Is that fair, Waleed? Yep, I think so. So that not only is the fact that there are more proportionally more old people in wealthy, prosperous, liberal, democratic societies— not only do they have disproportionate political influence and that politicians need to uh, appeal to them more vigorously, more attentively than, say, younger voters, but also older people have a greater share of wealth. They have greater security. The expensiveness, let's put it, the expensiveness of their living oftentimes at the expense of uh, housing affordability or the climate means that they don't feel the sense of peril about the future or the precariousness of life or employment prospects or housing prospects, that it feels like politics skews towards the old. They have a lion's share of capital, wealth, and influence. And older interests tend to keep winning elections. Let's just put it that way. I think at this point, 
It depends what you mean by old. Yes, that's true. <laughs> Thank you. Because there's a counter-argument, which, by the way, we have made on this show on a matter like aged care mm. of a kind of structural ageism. That's right. So do you mean those people? I don't know that you do, actually. No, of course not. I would not frame it this way. I think I would try to frame it by saying one of the things democracy has shown it is not very good at is anything long-term and especially anything that requires intergenerational consideration. Or abstract calculations. Yeah. Well, by virtue of the fact that the interests that we're thinking about are belong to people who don't yet exist. Mm-hmm. If we go from not thinking about people who don't yet exist at all through to thinking about people who do exist but don't yet vote, not very much, through to thinking about people who do vote but not in significant enough numbers to sway things a little bit more but still not very much. The end result of that is that it's vanishingly rare for the interests and the priorities of the young to be given democratic expression or at least institutionally democratic expression. The one rider to that would probably be the last election federally where we saw things that young people are, shall we say, disproportionately interested. I don't mean that as criticism. I just mean that they're more interested in it than the median voter, shall we say. They did become, if not decisive, then very influential. And climate change is one of those things. We're in the midst of a housing crisis in which parties are competing to come up with solutions or at least rhetoric. And in a really interesting, I think unprecedented turn of events in Australia, the standing opposition has dealt themselves out of the conversation really. And it's become Mm. a competition, if you like, between Labor and the Greens. I don't recall that ever happening before where that's the decisive battle. These are all signs that actually the interests of the young are being taken into account. And then, of course, there's an analysis that is to come and we might do later about how you would slice up the referendum result on age and the extent to which young people's views were or weren't reflected in the overall vote. But what you're dealing with is a question at the very least, perhaps a crisis at the very most, of democratic representation, perhaps even legitimacy. Mm Mm-hmm in the eyes of the young. And you do, from time to time, see these polls that come out showing that young people are actually quite open to the idea that democracy is not the best system of government and so on, which was an unthinkable thing probably for previous generations, um, at least in these sorts of numbers. Just to pick you up on that, though, Waleed, one of the ones that has kind of disturbed me maybe a little bit more than that, because I believe that there's a kind of morally beneficial force of habit whereby simply getting used to doing something again and again can create the sort of habits that are necessary to allow certain patterns of sort of beneficial and mutually responsive life to take place. One of the things that disturbed me, some recent research out of ANU, is that young people, and here we're talking about aged 18 to 30, if voting in Australia wasn't mandatory, just shy of 50% said that they probably wouldn't vote. That, for me, is in many respects the more interesting one. It's not just, you know, democracy can't really deliver the goods because we are sort of caught in the vice grip of mutually competing interests, maybe moneyed interests, uh, short-term thinking, or, you know, simply the weight of legacy, party stagnation, and so on. The bigger issue for me is what happens when you believe that what's the point of voting in the first place? place when it feels as though representative politics is very, very poor at addressing matters uh, not just of immediate concern, like climate change, but also matters 
that are morally inflected. There's a certain claim to justice. There's a claim to equality. And that by failing to answer that claim or by failing to heed that call without grubbying it by engaging in a form of, of compromise, if we can't answer that call, then maybe there are various forms of, let's say, direct democracy or digitally mediated democracy, or cause-based democracy, or everyday democracy. Or undemocratic radical politics. Or undemocratic radical politics that are going to end up being far more potent or that are going to preserve the moral ideal at the heart of the particular claim intact than necessary democratic compromise. Yeah. Uh, the only observation I want to add is that survey result that you quote, I mean, it's reflected in what you see in, say, US and UK elections where voting is voluntary. That's right. And the low turnout of the young and, for example, the Brexit vote and even the 2016 US election and so on, that was a low turnout election generally, but you know what I mean, reflects this fact that there is a lack of political engagement of an institutional sort when it comes to young voters. Mm. Some of that might be that they're just not politically engaged. Some of it might be that they're politically engaged, but not in a way in which they see democracy as relevant, which is kind of what you've set out. And here I find it very hard to assess because it's very easy to look at social media and go, this is the most politically engaged generation we've ever seen. Mm. But the problem is it inevitably comes up again and again in the real world as a deeply unrepresentative sample mm. of people. So I never know quite how to assess it. But what we can say is there is young or youthful uh, political engagement. It's happening probably at a higher temperature than we've seen before, even if not in higher numbers, and possibly in higher numbers, but it's definitely there. The question is, really, is there a way for that to find any kind of institutional expression that works as part of the demos, as part of the national whole, rather than as something in contradistinction to it? Nice. I love that. What were you going to add? Here's the twist. And the paradox that's knotted up here, I find delicious and troubling at once. One of the very interesting things for me is that the particular forms of political engagement that many young people, I mean, we really need to give our definitions here. I mean, by young people, I think we're probably talking about two overlapping groups. We're probably talking about age 12 to, let's say, 25, 26. In other words, both before and after the legal voting age, um, straddling uh, formal education, both sort of, you know, late primary, secondary, then probably university probably before the responsibilities of life have really set in, which is to say, you know, mortgages, permanent employment, and, and so on. And so th there's a degree of precarity, but there's also a degree of aspiration uh, that's bound up. The other group that we're probably talking about is from 18 to 30. In other words, with the voting age, right through to, say, early career. That tends to be, just in terms of representative samples, they tend to be the operative groups. When we're talking about old, I, I just turned 50 this year. I'm really terrified to find out that what we're really talking about is 50 and up. 50 and up tend to have far more in common with 65 plus, which is the usual cutoff point, especially when it comes to some of the issues that we're talking about. Um, so there is something about kind of young, precarious, uh, but also sort of digitally networked, digitally mediated uh, and setting off on careers, but probably without the burdens of mortgage and so on, uh, versus those who are already thinking, say, late career or about retirement. Um, so those are the ages that we're talking about. What I find so interesting, Walid, is that the forms of political engagement, and let's say 
the forms of political engagement that are both locally focused, that are bound up with certain forms of consumption, of networking, and certain forms of, let's call them everyday politics. In other words, not just engaging in elections or in party membership, but the forms of everyday democratic deliberation that John Dewey said were the lifeblood of any democratic society worth its salt. What's interesting is that the forms of, quote-unquote, political engagement that younger people engage in are more philosophically recognizable to someone like John Dewey than what we usually think of as political mobilization and activity or engagement, namely party membership, voting, and so on. It's that kind of sporadic democratic politics that uh, has long been viewed very, very poorly by democratic theorists. So in many, in some respects, there's a kind of integrity to the daily political engagement, uh, forms of local solidarity, of uh, ethical consumption, for instance, that are expressed by younger people. Uh, and I don't think these are forms of engagement that should be necessarily dismissed or waved away. Here's the irony. Because of the greater representation of younger politically engaged persons in social media, in forms of, let's call it, official mass culture, and in entertainment industries. In other words, because this is the group to which those industries tend to kind of direct their product. Even though those who are older have greater political representation and palpably greater political influence, they cannot help but see themselves as politically diminished, taken for granted, marginalized, treated with disdain, treated as obsolete because of the sheer tonnage of younger political activism that's digitally networked on social media, that's expressed in mass culture, and so on. So here's the irony. You've got a group of people who are highly politically engaged through particular mechanisms that are usually outside of the usual forms of political democratic representation. They are politically engaged and aspirational, but they don't have much political power, and they may not have much political influence. But they feel as though their aspirations and their calls for justice, for action on climate change, for recognition, for greater equality, and so on, cannot be comprehended by and cannot be answered by our official political mechanisms. Hence, you have the disconnect between their aspirations and their engagement on the one hand and mechanisms of political power on the other. The flip side of that is you have people who have a great deal of political influence and disproportionate political power who feel as though their voices are increasingly counting for little and less culturally, politically, and are being made to feel as though they are objects of contempt or derision, that they're being made to feel stupid at referendums, uh, that they're being asked to sacrifice too much in the interests of uh, a problem that they're not going to be around to see. In other words, you have the same democratic deficit, a feeling of not belongingness or even disenfranchisedness. No, what it is is alienation. Alienation. Yeah. So, so you have disillusionment on the one hand and alienation on the other. And you put those two phenomena together. And it is a recipe for that problem that John Rawls said is the acid that tends to eat at the heart of aspirationally just societies, namely mutual suspicion and resentment. Mm, that's right. 
Do you know another way of saying what you said, which I think you won't like? Sure. That popular culture reflects a certain minority, perhaps even elite position. Yeah. That doesn't accord with the mainstream. Mm, and so that there's a popular cultural hegemony of sorts that the mainstream resists. Yes, I think that's right. Which means... Yes, right. the... That's interesting because that's, that's basically the Trump narrative. Yes. Which means the appetite for forms of popular culture that do offer recognition. You are not obsolete. Your concerns are not stupid or invalid. There is a tremendous appetite for precisely that. And we are seeing that appetite not just assert, asserting itself in certain demands for particular forms of mass culture, but also we're seeing that assert itself with an electoral force that I think is undeniable. But which itself becomes a form of popular culture. That's what's interesting That's right. about That's it. That's true. I mean, I don't, I don't want to keep talking about Trump because I think it's too easy to go back to the Trump example. It's becoming the new Godwin's law, isn't it? Yes. Public discourse. But he is an interesting figure in this regard because he becomes a popular culture figure as president or even as presidential candidate. It becomes part politics, part grab the popcorn. And it's popular culture for those people, right? Mm. For the forgotten people or whatever it is. And what is interesting is as popular culture generally marches on in this direction, which we've kind of just diagnosed as alienating in a certain way to a significant number of people, it does so apparently without a recognition that that's what's happening. Mm. So are we really then just describing a broader phenomenon of fragmentedness or fracture that shows up along demographic and age lines, but not only along those lines. In which case, are we identifying something that really does have anything uniquely to do with age or not? I, I think it is to do with age only because we've started to see this trend now, and we've, we've recently had a study done, I think it was by the Centre for Independent Studies actually here, that we've seen similar things in the UK and the US, showing that young people today are not getting more conservative as they age. Mm. And that actually their voting patterns in Australia, for example, they're, they're turning more towards the Greens rather than towards the coalition, which is what previous generations would have expected. So in other words, what I, what I mean by that is not to say young people are not conservative and old people are. That's, that's an old observation. Mm -hmm. What's new is that the conventional arc of the voter throughout you know, the average voter's life is not being followed at the moment. There's a divergence. They're turning more progressive not conservative as they age. And that surely has to reflect what it is that democracy hasn't delivered for them. In other words, they don't become conservative because they, they feel the journey of their life hasn't left them with much to conserve. Mm, exactly. The housing market hasn't delivered them a house, uh, for example, that turns them into an asset owner that means that they start behaving electorally like asset owners and so on. And this is fascinating for me because I wonder, does that mean that the institutional relationship that people who are currently young have with democracy will self-correct because you're not going to see them fall into more conservative camps. And so eventually democracy institutionally will align with their interests. Or will we see some kind of fracture where it's just goodbye to democracy because I can't find a major party that's actually ever going to hold government that's going to reflect my interests. And by the time that could theoretically hove into view, I've already given up. I'm already alienated. Mm. I, I think that's a brilliant way of putting it. Let me just add one tiny thing before we bring in our guest. The idea that demography, that generational change will fix 
democratic problems, I think is an extremely dangerous one. I'm not saying that that's what you're saying. I'm saying you're heightening the stakes that are involved in that kind of presumption. But one of the ways that it becomes really problematic in the short term is that if there is this belief that uh, history will simply bear you out and that you are mm. among those who are going away. Then it's just hurry up and die, will you? Thank so we you. Can, that is a yeah. recipe for contempt. But it yeah. also generates not just resentment of the younger towards the older. It can also create a viciousness, a desperation, whereby things that are regarded as being of value are held onto with a tenacity, again, with a desperation that may well be counterproductive. And I think one of the things where we see this beginning to come through an awareness of it culturally even, you know, two of the great novels of the last 20 years, I'm thinking of, say, Christopher Buckley's great novel, Boomsday, where uh, the elderly are given financial incentives in a all-expenses-paid month-long trip overseas in order to then come back and accept voluntary euthanasia so that they stop being a, a drag on the social security system. Or even a novel like John Lanchester's The Wall, where, you know, future society in the grip of climate change and, and mass displacement turns with a kind of contemptuous vengeance on the old that didn't do enough to help ameliorate a collapsing climate in the first place. Um, that kind of active resentment can have not just troublingly immoral effects, but also catastrophically, uh, rupturingly democratic effects. So I guess for, for me, the real question is, I mean, how is it that we can begin fully enfranchising the interests, the intensity, the particular forms of engagement of the young in a manner that channels that engagement towards the particular virtues and practices that I think are essential to and essentially good in and of democracy, namely certain practices of principled compromise, the ability to lose and come back stronger, the ability to, to practice forms of civility as the particular expression of the virtue that is inherent to the position mm. of citizen itself. So there's the issue of enfranchisement, of dealing with the issue of political disillusionment, but that at the same time has enough quality of mutual respect and properly harnessed democratic functioning that it has the ability to create those forms of broader majority that don't leave those who were formally empowered, formally enfranchised, as if they're trying to struggle for their very survival within a contested polity. Thankfully, we will not plough through this alone. We have a guest, Scott. Our guest is Philippa Collins. She's Professorial Research Fellow at the Institute for Culture and Society at Western Sydney University. She also co-directs the Young and Resilient Research Lab and Intergenerate Living Lab. Philippa, welcome to the minefield. It's wonderful to have you. Hello, Scott and Waleed. It's great to be here. And um, what a way to open up the discussion. It's certainly, I think, a, an enormous amount that we're thinking through at the moment. The way that I come at this in many ways is perhaps to ask the question, if we're facing a crisis of democracy, what is that crisis about? And how would we meaningfully respond to it? You know, Is it a crisis of a disconnect between the expectations and practices or values of a new generation and our already existing democracy? 
Is it a problem of our times? Is it a, an issue of our inability to even comprehend and respond to the long-term complex problems that we're having to grapple with right now? And, and if so, how would we deal with it? And one of the things that I think really resonated with me and much of what you were saying was around this question of who counts? Who is to say what is democracy? What is politics? What are the key issues? And one of the reasons why I think it's so important that we actually think about this in terms of children and young people is that if for no other reason then they help us to shine a light on what the deficiencies of the system are. Our attendance to their concerns, to their practices and to their expectations, their their aspirations for democracy, I think are really illuminating. And one of the reasons why, I mean, one of the things I was thinking as you were talking that's really important to point out from my perspective is the moment that we're in right now, I think, is has a much longer trajectory, you know, both in terms of how we think about um, politics and democracy, what matters to people, how they act in society, um, but also some of those, I guess, structuring forces that, you know, are really central to the politics of our time, like inequality and like climate change. Because one of the things that I think is really interesting in what we're grappling with here is, you know, what are the continuities and what are the breaks? So, for instance, even though children and young people have long been political, and my colleague Judith Bassant has pointed out in her book, Making Up People, Youth, Truth and Politics, that at least from the 18th century or the French Revolution, children have been extremely important to politics and political change. It's really only recently that we've seen sort of this surge, this kind of mass calling out from children and young people to be heard or to be seen within democracy, to be, if you like, as Vancia would put it, that part that has no part. And I think it's that call for a sort of a radical break, if you like, in democracy, for it to open up, for it to become broader and more responsive to all people, if you like, or at least as many as possible, is, I think, one of the the clues and the opportunities that can help us to work through, you know, some of these really, really complicated issues of political culture, of institutional design, of the mediascape, and so forth. But Philippa, what does that actually mean, that call? So I think there's a habit, and I'm not pinning this on the young, I think this is what actually everyone in democracy either has always done or just seems to be doing a lot now. It feels like it's happening more now to me, but that could just be recency bias. Of thinking that when they lose, when they're on the losing side, they were silenced, they were not heard, rather than they were heard and disagreed with. So if you're talking about opening up democracy, beyond structural things like, I don't know, as we've discussed on this show, giving the vote to people from the age of six or something like that, right? Beyond that, what does it mean to open up democracy in a way that allows young people to be heard such that they're not at the moment? Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, I think Scott really tapped into this, I think, in this point around the power of every day 
politics and not just a kind of amplification of that everyday politics, you know, the issues-based, everyday, low-threshold kind of politics that you often see in a community sense when people get together locally for Clean Up Australia Day or to plan for um, particular actions around climate change or, for instance, signing an online petition, but about how we really connect those everyday practices that we know are increasingly commonplace, not just among young people, but actually across age cohorts, linking that up better, I guess, with incumbent power, with institutional politics. And I think this is not actually an issue of youth at all. I mean, Pippa Norris really 20 years ago pointed out that this shift away from more top-down, loyalty-based politics where people sort of join a political party or or a traditional volunteering organisation and in a sense kind of wait their turn, this sort of apprentice model where you you get closer to the centre of power and therefore have more influence. It doesn't really hold anymore. And so I think it is a, a kind of a call to our political leaders, to political institutions to think about how they open up, how they become more responsive and more receptive to the public. Can I just give an example here that this may help, it may not help. There's a theoretical aspect to it and there's an intensely practical aspect to it. But this is kind of what really comes most powerfully to mind for me. You know, we, especially since Machiavelli, we've had a particular concept of what politics is and what political power does. In many respects, Philippa, that's just what you were describing, the kind of gradual apprenticeship through the various levels of low-level participation through to something like mastery. Uh, But it really is ultimately all about power. It really is about control, not necessarily in the sort of in the terrible or aggressive sense, but in the sense that all politics has to be about, to some extent, um, how one orders life together. But there is, of course, that other political tradition that Hannah Arendt tapped into, that people like Sheldon Wolin have tried to preserve, and that's the idea of politics as an act of cultivation, politics as the pastoral practice of nurturing together that which we hold in highest value and in common. So the various forms of power and governance and administration and rule, these are at best penultimate goods. But the ultimate good is the cultivation of that thing which we have in common. This even goes back to an idea from from Augustine in his great political treatise, The City of God, where a political community is formed as a group of people gather around a common object of love. And it's by the preservation, the cultivation of the conditions within which that common object of love can survive that the identity, the particular nature, the practices and the habits of that political community begin to take shape. I realize it seems like a bit of a kind of abstract or even a naive idea of what politics is like. But just think, for instance, about the shift that's taken place in a group like Extinction Rebellion over the last year. I mean, I've been suspicious about Extinction Rebellion's kind of totalizing demands, its demand for for a kind of categorical purity or absolute response in the name of capital J justice in response to what any rational person would regard as being a, a rapidly collapsing climate. But there has been a recognition by some of the philosophers closely and politicians closely associated with Extinction Rebellion that that very 
aspiration, that very demand for a kind of preoccupation in everyday life with the agonies of the climate. There's been something about that that's had the effect of alienating the very fellow travelers and participants in a common cause that they would otherwise hope to persuade. And so there's been a reorientation of Extinction Rebellion itself around a different, what has been referred to as the conservative wing of the Extinction Rebellion, which is the Climate Majority Project, whereby the young and the old, children and grandparents, gather together, replicating the same politics of everyday life in workplaces, in schools, through local grassroots, community-based projects right through to high-level political advocacy and agitation. But the whole point of it is this is something around which a super-majority can gather without contempt, without suspicion, without demographic disdain or charges of impracticality or kind of youthful purity or enthusiasm. But rather, it is the discovery of something that is worth preserving in common and the reorientation of one's political life, workplaces, schools, politics, and so on, around that common object of love. It seems to me that that's beginning to get really, really, really close. Correct me if I'm wrong, Philippa, but to the kind of cross-generational and demographically non-contemptuous forms of political engagement and activism that you may well be gesturing towards. Yeah, no, I think that that's really, really key here. I mean, firstly, that, you know, this idea of politics as action, I think, does get much closer to what we see young people, children and young people, but also I think a lot of the disillusionment with democracy really comes from many people in society feeling as though their actions do not count, mm. even though their actions are precisely that point, I think, that Arendt makes is of politics as action. And this is, I think, what we see absolutely when we look at the ways in which young people are are engaging, if you like, in politics. But, of course, this is not how we generally treat the idea of learning about politics and um, democracy and civics. So there's a real disconnect there between, I think, people's orientations to the idea of politics, particularly when it, you know, manifests as concern for an issue, which is often where I think I think this is the whole point that Pippa Norris is making, is that the politics emerges, if you like, through the lenses of issues now more than ever. So whether that's gender-based violence or First Nations justice or climate or concern for the environment or animals, people begin to see themselves as part of a public, as a citizen, of someone who has a view on the way in which society should be through the lens of issues and it is through that lens that they begin to act and hence politics as action is absolutely key. And this idea that there are in fact some disconnects between I guess a more adversarial form of political culture within our existing institutions absolutely doesn't manifest if you like in the more contemporary forms of political action and organising. I think the the climate justice movement more broadly, and certainly if we look at it here in Australia, is a really great example of one where we see young people, yes, claiming space, asserting themselves as valued members of society that should have a right to have a say on the ways in which we 
respond to the climate crisis. But they're not doing it alone. And this intergenerational solidarity, I think, is something that we vastly underestimate in terms of one of the remedies for some of the challenges that I think we face in democracy. But it is an intergenerational solidarity, I think, that is based on different kinds of values, different expectations. I mean, you can have agonism without it being reduced to absolute contestation and divide. You can have agonism, which is about deliberation, about discussion, about working through the complexities. And those are the kinds of values that I think we see most visible in what I would call a useful politics. It is absolutely intergenerational. Those values of care, of engagement, of recognition, of justice, those are the sorts of values and we might even call them virtues of democracy, which I think through their assertion, through their actions and also the kinds of organisations that they're creating are sort of a, a signal back to the kinds of institutions of democracy, the kinds of um, forms of incumbent power that we have at the moment, that they're sorely lacking in these sorts of virtues, care, recognition, justice. Mm. I feel like I live in a different world. I'm not seeing what both of you are because what are we saying? That young people are less inclined to conflictual politics? I don't I don't see any evidence for that mm, really. I um I see a lot of evidence to the contrary. I understand that they might be wanting to make justice claims and seek solidarities with identity groups to whom they don't belong, but they're not justice claims that are in any way inclusive of those who might frame issues differently. I mean, one of the, we saw that, didn't we, in the referendum? We saw that at the heart of it, I'm worried about saying at the heart of it because so many things were happening at once, but there was a competing notion of what justice and equality meant, mm, right? right? There was one notion that for whom equality meant a constitutionally enshrined voice to parliament, and there was another view in which that was the very opposite, that was inequality, that was institutionalising in a permanent way, at least a practically permanent way, inequality, that the equality was in everyone having the same rights, not in according a set of special or unique rights to one sector of the Australian population. I don't know that justice claims, even solidaristic ones, preclude antagonistic politics. In many ways, they can fuel them. It's really about whether or not... I mean, if what you're looking for is... I don't know, a way of overcoming that through action or, or through reaching across generations or whatever, it's going to at some level require an ability to reach out to people and understand people who are using a different set of concepts. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing very little evidence of that. Maybe I'm just wrong about that. Maybe it's just I'm not looking in the mm-hmm. right places. But but where mm-hmm. is that happening? Uh, well, I think you make a really good point and I probably sound very categorical when I when I talk about what I understand to be some of the sort of core practices, values and expectations. But you're absolutely right that this this is still a spectrum and we shouldn't be generalizing. But I mean I think the the voice debate is a really interesting one because I think what we see, or what I see anyway, is actually a lot of young people a lot of people generally right across that spectrum who may be more or less in favour, who may see 
the core issues at the heart of the question that the referendum is posing differently. But they're not walking away from the need to engage, to explore, to question, to challenge their own ideas and the ideas of others. And it's that element of engagement which I think is really important. When we currently have the highest rate of enrolment to vote amongst young people aged 18 to 25 than ever before. And that, I think, you know, went up during the marriage equality poll. It's increased, I think, by nearly 5% just ahead of this referendum, which signals to me that there's not a disengagement of people from democracy or from institutional politics. It's quite the reverse. And it's that element of engagement, which I think is really at the core of what I see as being the issue. It's about overcoming those discourses, those institutional arrangements, the kind of talk about the fourth estate as well, the ways in which young people are discursively constructed or or actually ignored and kind of erased within certain parts of the media. But the challenge is overcoming the lack of concern, recognition and engagement with young people as opposed to whether or not young people care about or are willing to engage in politics or our democracy. There's an unavoidable conclusion that comes out of what the two of you just said. And that's that after the energy of the same-sex marriage postal vote, and after the contestation of the voice-to-parliament referendum, a political election is going to feel pretty tame and uninteresting. There's something about the focus, for better or for worse, and Waleed and I have talked plenty of times about the worst side of things, on the single issue and the sharpening of things to an absolute choice that is both energizing politics and potentially destructive of democratic politics. Are we going to be at the point where the only way for us to reinstill a degree of faith and energy and aspiration in democratic politics as usual will be to hold something like regular referenda or regular bouts of direct democracy or plebiscites? Is that what the future holds for us? I would love that to be the outcome, Scott. I mean, I do think that it's an extremely interesting point. How would we actually break down the monolith, if you like? I mean, I think there are actually some processes within government that maybe you don't see readily enough as potentially more deliberative than they are already that could, in a sense, be amplified. So here I'm thinking about, like, the committee structure, you know, and the way that they conduct inquiries. I think it would be energising for the population to feel as though we are able to more regularly and more carefully and more deliberatively deal with some of these issues. Is that going to be enough to deal with some of the other rather more thorny issues about what does or doesn't impinge on democratic process? And here I'm thinking about things like political donations, Issues that kind of really go to questions of integrity and political interest. But it's a wonderful idea and certainly one that I think we could experiment with. I'm not so sure that the conclusion is that only plebiscitary or referendum politics can generate engagement or passion of this kind and certainly from the young. I mean, I take Philippa's point that she made earlier about the uptick in voter registrations. I think some of that might also be due to a quite active campaign from the Australian Electoral Commission yes, that's right. to enrol people. Yeah. So it may not be a kind of, you know, organic interest in engagement in politics so much as 
political enrolment being something that's kind of put in front of them and they go, oh, okay. I don't know for sure, but I, I got that from talking to someone from the Australian Electoral Commission. Maybe that's just the way they see the world and it's not actually what's happening. It's very hard for me to know. So I think it is true there's a certain energy around that style of politics because it is inherently polarising, like structurally so, by making everything yes or no. There's an energy around that that might mm. attract those sort of people. But I don't know that that necessarily means that that's the only political engagement they'll be up for or that they, sure. they can't really show interest when it's a bit less spectacular for a couple of reasons. One is general elections can sometimes be quite spectacular. Mm. And how often do you hear the phrase, this election is a referendum on X? Yeah, because often they do get boiled down to these sorts of things. But also that I, I do think that you can have a referendum or a plebiscite or something being, I don't know, a gateway drug, if you like, to the broader phenomenon of engagement with politics as such. So I'd accept there'd be a little tapering, perhaps, but I don't know that they're mutually exclusive ideas. The other thing we haven't interrogated, I'm not saying we do, I just flag it here, is we are presuming that political engagement that is born of a referendum or, or actually anyhow, even if it's through a general election, whatever, that this is necessarily a good thing. I'm, I'm less yet to be convinced about that. I think one of Australia's saving graces contra the United States mm. is the participation of the politically disengaged. Yeah. And in many ways, and this goes back, I guess, to theories of wisdom of crowds and so on and so forth, if you really want to theoretically understand it. But there's something about that that I think is one of Australia's great virtues, one of Australia's great saving graces. And it can sometimes be people like us who are politically engaged presupposing our own virtue <laughs> and sort of going, if only there were more people like us, then maybe things would be a lot better. And I, I, I'm growing increasingly sceptical of those sort of self-aggrandizing sorts of claims. Mm. But I think like the key thing here, like the thing that I think is really interesting is actually how we foster a sense of political interest and efficacy. And I think one of the things is, yeah, it is definitely about how we frame things. So, Referenda are problematic because it does sort of whittle down to a to a binary vote. But actually, the referenda as a process is actually everything from the early discussions about, you know, and the campaigning and, and so on around why we would even have this and then, um, for better or worse, the, the public debate that happens in all kinds of different fora, from public picnics and around kitchen tables all the way through to the media and... So the more that we think about democracy as a process, that we think about going back to that point around politics as action, the better. And also the more participatory we can make it, the more we enhance people's sense of political interest and efficacy. And the reason why I think it's so important that we kind of centre children and young people in this thinking is not because there's something exceptional about them, even though we might well point to some of the like, really serious structural inequalities and injustices that go along with sort of adultist frameworks or issues like climate change and inequality. But like if we ask that question, how would we foster or nurture political interest and efficacy and thus a more robust democracy that's capable of dealing with these complex problems? We have to ask the question about what does that require of our institutions, of our schools and our education system, of our media, of all kinds of different things. And that's the bit that I think is kind of exciting and reinvigorating. What would it look like to take that seriously? And I think there is appetite for that right now. And I think that there is more of a need than ever before. Hmm. I'm generally speaking 
reticent. I'm suspicious about attempts at direct democracy. I, I think the topics that could rightly be up for a plebiscite or a referendum are extremely narrow. And as we discussed not too long ago, Walid, I think they should virtually never involve the status of or the public recognition of groups of people. We should never debate the status, civil, political, constitutional, or moral of our fellow citizens. I would just say, however, that it may well be that if the topic is right, and I don't know how else to put it, young people just need to get a win every now and then. <laughs> well, that's what they did, 2019. Yeah, I know. But it may well be, it may well be that a purifying plebiscite, like a fine sorbet, could restore a degree of faith in the deliberative capacities, in the ability to construct broad grassroots coalitions around a common object of love and value, and then to see that through a deliberative process come to assert itself on national attention and ultimately the national will. There could be something about that if it were properly married to civics instruction in school that isn't just about the mechanisms of government, but about the virtues that are proper to democratic life, which includes losing, which includes compromising and the difference between principal compromise and grubby compromise. If those two mm. things were brought together, I think that could, with Australia's Waleed disposition towards non-engagement, I think those things could work together really beautifully. Mm. Sort of faith in democratic politics, but without zealotry. I think there's something in that that could be gorgeous. Yeah. I wouldn't stop civics education at students, Scott, for that matter. I think that what you've just pointed out would actually be highly beneficial for some of our already elected representatives. Mm, agreed. We should probably return and have this conversation in our rocking chairs when we're all in our 80s. <laughs> See what's become of these sorts of ideas. Alas, that's not going to happen before the end of this show. We cannot age so quickly. Philippa, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Philippa Collin, Professorial Research Fellow at the Institute for Culture and Society at Western Sydney University, which is also the co-director of the Young and Resilient Research Centre and the Intergenerate Living Lab. I guess for this week's edition of The Mindfield, we're at an end. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.